This program is brought to you by Israel Restoration Ministries. What are you doing Sunday nights? Come join Friendship with God radio Bible teacher Tom Cantor of the Friendship with God Fellowship Church every Sunday night at 5.30 p.m. at The Vine at 9336 Abraham Way, Santee, California. Watch and listen live around the world to Tom Cantor Sunday evening on YouTube.com by searching for Friendship with God Fellowship or by going to our homepage at friendshipwithgod.org. That's friendshipwithgod.org. Welcome to Friendship with God with our Bible teacher, Tom Cantor. Today's message and previous messages can be listened to or downloaded for free at friendshipwithgod.org. Father, we're here for you this morning. And so, Lord, we, our eyes are upon you, Lord Jesus. Speak to our hearts, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, if you turn your Bible to the last verses of Matthew 24, verses 45 to 51, this is the section we're gonna be covering this morning, Lord willing. Verses 45 to 51, Matthew 24. Who then is a faithful and wise servant, whom his Lord hath made ruler over his household to give them meat in due season? Blessed is that servant whom his Lord, when he cometh, shall find so doing. Verily I say unto you that he shall make him ruler over all his goods. But, and if that evil servant shall say in his heart, my Lord delayeth his coming, and shall begin to smite his fellow servants and to eat and drink with the drunken, the Lord of that servant shall come in a day when he looketh not for him, and in an hour that he is not aware of, and shall cut him asunder and appoint him as portion with the hypocrites, there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, the Lord here is described what this faithful and wise servant is to do. And he is, it says here in verse 45 that this faithful and wise servant is to give them meat in due season. So what we see here in this parable is that we have a householder, a ruler's householder, that needs food, good food, meat. And this servant is charged with the responsibility of feeding the household with meat. This is a parable. This is an analogy of a servant of a ruler who is to feed the ruler's household with meat. And in order for us to understand the meaning of this parable, if we're gonna crack the code of this parable, there are four unknowns that we have to understand. Who does this ruler represent? Who does the ruler's household represent? Who does the servant represent? And what does this meat represent? Those are the four elements of this parable that we gotta crack in order to see. Well, the ruler represents Christ. Christ is the ruler, the master. Just as it says in Revelation 17, 14, Revelation 17, 14 says, these shall make war with the lamb and the lamb shall overcome them for he is the Lord of lords and king of kings. The ruler's household represents those that are in the sort of house of Christ or in the family of Christ. And he said who his family was. Is his family those that are, was fit, were physically related to him, just the Jewish people, for example? Well, that question was asked and answered in Matthew 12, 48. Matthew 12, 48, when he said, but he answered and said unto him that told him, 
who is my mother, who are my brethren? And he stretched forth his hand toward his disciples and said, behold my mother and my brethren, for whosoever shall do the will of my Father which is in heaven, the same is my brother, sister, and mother. So those that are obedient to God the Father are the family of Christ. They are the household of Christ. And the servant of the ruler in this parable has a responsibility of feeding the household with meat. As Christ said to Peter, as Christ said to Peter, in John 21, 13, John 21, 13 says, Jesus cometh and taketh bread and giveth them and fish likewise. This is now the third time that Jesus showed himself to disciples after that he was risen from the dead. So when they had dined, Jesus saith to Simon Peter, Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me more than these? He saith unto him, yea, Lord, thou knowest that I love thee. He saith unto him, feed my lambs. He saith to him again the second time, Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me? He saith unto him, yea, Lord, thou knowest that I love thee. He saith unto him, feed my sheep. He saith unto him the third time, Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me? Peter was grieved because he said unto him the third time, lovest thou me? He said unto him, Lord, thou knowest all things. Thou knowest that I love thee. Jesus saith unto him, feed my sheep. This is a very instructive scene here. The scene here is of Peter and the disciples. They, previous to this, they had decided to go out to work all night on the lake to fishing. It was a hard night. It was a night of casting nets and of waiting the time, then of drawing the nets in to catch the fish. And at first when they launched out, it's exciting. It was exciting. It's exciting to be on the water. Again, nice calm night. It presented all the promise all the hope that this is gonna be a great night of fishing. They're gonna get a lot of fish. And then there was that first try after the net was cast out. And then the pulling up of the net and they hoped that it would just be a little harder to pull in, which would indicate that there were fish in the net, but it wasn't heavy. And finally they got the net to the boat and they saw that they had nothing, such a disappointment. But as the saying goes on, at first you don't succeed, try again. So they did it, same exertion with the laying out of the net, the the putting out the net, everything perfect, net stretched out in the water, boat in the right place, nothing caught. They knew the fish were in the lake, the fish hasn't disappeared, but they weren't there. They were just in the wrong place at the wrong time. They tried, they tried, they tried all night long. Same routine, net stretched out. And wait the time, the fish should have been caught. Pull up the net, see nothing. And finally, the worst outcome that there could be after an all-night work of fishing, nothing. Not even a small fish to show for all their work. Not even enough fish to feed themselves, much less to, to sell. So where are they right now? They're on this lake. They're cold. They're hungry. They're tired. And as they're bringing this empty boat back to shore, there's the Lord. He's yelling to them, try one more time for the harvest of fish is to just put them on the right side. They put the net down. There's so much fish, it practically sinks the ship, practically sinks the boat. And not only that, but then they see that Christ has now a fire of coals on the shore with hot, freshly baked bread, 
Roasted fish on the grill, all ready for them, already done for them to be warmed, be fed. And because they were cold, they were tired, they were hungry, they were empty. And there was Christ with everything they needed, a warm fire, food already prepared, a gift of the fish full in the boat there where the disciples had just come in and they just said, he just said, just sit down, just sit down here and eat this wonderful bread and this He satisfied all their needs, all by gifts, but he gave to them. So now, as they're sitting there with Christ and those gifts of the food and the warmth and the great haul of fish right in front of them, all free gifts that he gave to otherwise empty disciples, and they were on the water totally empty, totally empty. They they had no warmth, they had no food, they had no rest, they had no fish, but he's now given them all that they need, warmth and fish and bread and rest by this fireside. They don't have to make the food. It's already done. Tremendous haul of fish. And so the disciples are on the shore there with Christ and Christ's gifts as like two, two things they can look at. They, they see on one hand, they look at Christ and on the other hand, they look at the gifts that Christ has given them. So with Christ and Christ's gifts there, Christ now asked Peter the question, which one, Peter, in John 21, 15, John 21, 15, lovest thou, lovest thou more than these? So with that one question, Christ is asking Peter, Peter, you see me here. You see my gifts here. Tell me, Peter, which one do you love more? Which one do you love more? Do you love me more than my gifts or do you love my gifts more than me? Make a choice, Peter. Make a choice. Which do you love more, me or my gifts? You know, it reminds me, this week I was reading about um, a case of a young girl in the UK who had non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. She'd just been diagnosed with non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, rare one, was a lump in her throat, she couldn't, anyway, they diagnosed it there, rare aggressive form of non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, it's always interesting to me, in the UK, and she had to take a horrible chemo, a horrible chemo that made her lose her hair, it made her body swell up like a balloon, she looked terrible. So she told her boyfriend uh, that she was living with, she told her boyfriend, she said, I've lost my beautiful hair and I look terrible and it's okay for you to leave me. She told him that. And he told her, he said to her, I don't love you because of your hair. I don't love you because of your appearance. I love you because of who you are, and I'm not gonna leave you. Well, this is a penetrating question that probes deep into the soul, the question that Christ has asked here. Do we love Christ himself more than we love the gifts that he gives us? Do we love Christ more for who he is than what he does. Do we love the person of Christ more than the works of Christ? We love Christ because of who he is or or, or what he does for us. How deep is our love for Christ? That's the question that's on the table. This is the question that, that Christ was asking Peter. How deep is it, Peter? And Christ asked that question to Peter three times. And by asking Peter that question three times, Christ was really saying to Peter, Peter, are you sure? Are you sure you love me more than my gifts? Peter, stop and really think about this. Don't just give it off the top the answer you think you're supposed to give. Am I really more valuable to you than the gifts that I give you? Peter, don't just shoot back an answer 
that you love me more because you know that's the correct answer. Do you really love me more than the gifts that I give you? You know, there's a, there's a beautiful hymn. It goes by a couple names. One of them is In Emmanuel's Land, and it's the way it is in our hymnal. There's another one, the title for the same song, The Sands of Time Are Sinking. It's interesting, this hymn, because the original hymn has 19 stanzas in it. I never saw him with 19 stanzas in it. So you had to make a choice of, of which one to include. That's probably why it was renamed in Emmanuel's land because you know they got the other one, 19 stanzas. And it reads, one of the stanzas read, the bride eyes not her garment, but her dear bridegroom's face. I will not gaze at glory, but on my king of grace. Not at the crown he giveth, but on his pierced hand. The lamb is all the glory of Emmanuel's land. That's so beautifully put. The bride eyes not her garment, but her dear bridegroom's face. When we get to heaven, what's gonna attract us is not our changed eternal body that's not subject to sickness anymore. It's not gonna be our purified soul. It's gonna be the face of Christ that's gonna grab our vision. It says, I will not gaze at glory, but on my king of grace. When we get to the glorious place of heaven where the streets are paved with gold, it's not gonna be the glory and the beauty of this place, heaven, that's gonna captivate us. It's gonna be Jesus Christ, the king of heaven. That's my friend, my Jewish friend. One time we were alone together and he doesn't really believe in heaven and hell and afterlife and so he said, Tom, tell me, what is heaven like, he said. And I said, that I can answer in two words, Jesus Christ, that's what heaven is like. And then comes what I think is the best verse in the hymn, not at the crown he giveth, but on his pierced hand. You know, that phrase, that phrase, not at the crown he giveth, but on his pierced hands, it makes me think of the winners. You know, the winners of the Olympics, you know, the gold medal and the silver medal and the bronze medal. And we've all seen this scene in the Olympics where the winner of the gold medal will take the gold medal that's put around the neck and, and he or she, they'll kiss the medal. You've seen that? They kiss the medal, a gold medal. Or you've seen the Wimbledon Tennis Championship, you know, that goes on for so long. You know, one person after the other eliminated and finally there's the winner. And then comes that grand Wimbledon cup that's given to him. And you've seen the scene where, where the person kisses the cup, you know, or the America's Cup. It's called the America's Cup, but we lost it. So it should be called the Australian Cup, but it's still called the America's Cup for sailing. And so the sailing goes on and all the different nations, you know, and are competing. And finally there's the winner and the captain comes up and he's presented with this big America's Cup, beautiful cup, used to be not the San Diego Yacht Club, but now it's the place. Anyway, and then the, the captain kisses the cup, you know, or the Indy 500, you know, the winner's circle, you know, and again, kissing the trophy. And those are all scenes of winners kissing the cups, kissing the medals, and the cameras are rolling and the flashes are, are going off and the announcer is saying, and now the winner is kissing the cup or the trophy or the medal. Well, here's another scene of a winner's circle, and the winner is coming up, and Christ is giving the winner now the crown of glory. And we can imagine heaven's cameras and flashes going off, and the announcer with the live report says, and now as the winner approaches the, to receive his crown of glory, 
and we're all waiting for him and everybody's expecting him to kiss the crown of glory, but then he says, but wait, he's ignoring the crown of glory and he's kissing the hand of Christ that's giving him that crown of glory. And he's stating by that, I love Christ more than this crown of glory. It's wonderful, it just captures the essence of loving Christ more than the gifts that Christ gives. So Peter says three times that he loves Christ more than what Christ gives, and then Christ says, is that so, Peter? If that's so, then, John 2.15, feed my lambs. If that's really true, Peter, John 2.16, I mean 21, John 21.16, feed my sheep. If that's really true, Peter, John 21.17, feed my sheep. That was Christ saying to Peter, Peter, if you really do love me, if you really do love me, then love what I love. I love my lambs, I love my sheep, the ones who have newly come to me in my family, my lambs. I love my sheep, the ones who've been with me for a while, my family. Peter, the way you should love them is to feed them, feed their souls, feed them with teaching, feed them with truth, teach that I am Jehovah Jesus, teach that I am Jehovah Messiah, teach that I am Jehovah Lamb of God, Teach them all my words. Make them feed on my word. In Matthew 4.4, Matthew 4.4, he answered and said unto them, it's written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Peter, teach them every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Then you'll show that you love me more than my gifts. So this means that this passage that we're studying here in Matthew 24 is all about teaching. Now, you might be thinking just, well, you know, Tom, that's for you, not for me. No, not so. Because each one of us has been called to fulfill Christ's great commission, his great commission, and his great commission is all about teaching. It's all about teaching in Matthew 28, 18. Matthew 28, 18, Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, all power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things which I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Every one of us has a calling from Christ to teach. Teach the lost who Christ is. Teach the lost what he demands. Why? Because they're destroyed like Israel destroyed for lack of knowledge. They don't know, they don't know, Hosea 4.6, Hosea 4.6, my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge because thou hast rejected knowledge, I also will reject thee. So teaching applies to every follower of Christ, especially to parents, especially to parents because of the great Shema, the great Shema of Deuteronomy 6.4, Deuteronomy 6.4, it's all about teaching. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thine heart, with all thy soul, with all thy might. These words which I command thee this day shall be in thine heart, and thou shalt teach them diligently unto thy children. Unto thy children, and thou shalt talk of them when thou sittest in thine house, and when thou walkest by thy way, and when thou liest down, and when thou risest up. The command is teach them diligently to the children, it's a command of God. And then you say, 
How? How do you teach children? What's the best way to teach children? Not with a stiff, now you kids sit down right now and I'm gonna lecture you on doctrine and what's that thing where they ask questions and I forgot what's going on. But anyway, through the day. No, instead, it's a teaching when thou sittest in thy house and when thou walkest by the way and when thou liest down and when thou risest up. That pretty much describes the whole day. And it describes a spontaneity throughout the day. Because children are very aware of everything that's going on. And with the children watching and everything, we also watch and we wait for opportunities to teach. Not in a rehearsed, prepared, cold, advanced teaching, but on the spur of the moment capturing those scenes that come in front of us with words and using them to teach about God the Father, to teach about heaven, to teach about Christ. And God wants parents to be spontaneous teachers on the spur of the moment. Like yesterday, yesterday I was on this flight on American Airlines and we flew in from Phoenix to San Diego in the evening. The plane was full and two rows ahead of me, there was a mom and a dad and they had a two-year-old girl on their lap, and she was sitting on their lap, and she was very talkative. As a matter of fact, she was sitting up front, kind of like Louis Silver that I just described to you, this little girl was, because she stood up on her dad's lap, and she faced behind her where I was, and she felt that she was the announcer talking to everybody there. And so when the plane landed, she stood up on her dad's lap, and she announced to everybody, to the whole plane, she just said, we made it home. <laughs> she said that, we made it home. And I thought, what a golden opportunity to teach that little girl that when she takes her last trip in death and gets to heaven, that she's gonna say those same words, we made it home. Because this world's not our home. And heaven is our home. Because Jesus said in John 14, 3, John 14, 3, I go and prepare a place for you. I'll come again and receive you unto myself that where I am, there ye may be also. That's home, that's home. That's what it means to be a spontaneous teacher of children, to look for those opportunities, to look for those scenes, to look for those words. And it's not just with children. God wants us to be spontaneous teachers constantly looking for opportunities to teach spontaneously because spontaneous teaching is the most effective and it's the most powerful method of teaching because people know it wasn't rehearsed. It wasn't prepared. It was spontaneous because the subject is alive in the heart. When thou liest down, when thou risest up, when thou walkest by the way. It demonstrates that the subject is alive inside the teacher and the teacher is looking in life for opportunities to illustrate, to explain, to clarify spiritual truths, biblical truths. And Paul was constantly thinking of himself as a teacher. And at one point, he told the Corinthian believers that he was frustrated with them because he wanted to teach them more. He wanted to bring them along and he wasn't able to because the teaching that he had given to the Corinthians was not functional in them. It was not having an effect on their lives and it frustrated him. In 1 Corinthians 3, 1, 1 Corinthians 3, 1, where he says, I, brethren, could not speak unto you as unto spiritual, but as unto carnal, even as babes in Christ. I fed you with milk 
and not with meat. For hitherto you're not able to bear it, neither are you now able. For you're carnal, for whereas there is among you envying and strife and divisions, are you not carnal and walk? So Christ said in verse 45 of our text here that a faithful and wise servant is one who feeds Christ's household with meat in verse 45, his household to give them meat in due season. He spoke of meat, you know, that great meat, protein-rich, bodybuilding meat. That's what the body needs, meat. And Paul says, I can't feed you with meat because you're not moving along in your lives. Tom Cantor's messages can be listened to and downloaded for free at friendshipwithgod.org. For other free resources, email us at tomcantor at friendshipwithgod.org or call us at 800-247-3051. Join our live services on YouTube by searching Friendship with God with Tom Cantor every Sunday at 5.30 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. What are you doing Sunday nights? Come join Friendship with God radio Bible teacher Tom Cantor of the Friendship with God Fellowship Church every Sunday night at 5.30 p.m. at The Vine at 9336 Abraham Way, Santee, California. Watch and listen live around the world to Tom Cantor Sunday evening on YouTube.com by searching for Friendship with God Fellowship or by going to our homepage at friendshipwithgod.org. That's friendshipwithgod.org. This program is brought to you by Israel Restoration Ministries.